Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Creative Placemaking Podcast, powered by Local Initiative Support Corporation, LISC. I'm your host, Jordan Carter, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Lynn McCormick. Together, we make up the Creative Placemaking Department at LISC. Thank you all for listening to our sixth podcast episode, and we appreciate you for joining us during this inaugural season. This podcast was created to honor folks using arts and culture to address systems of inequality and those developing creative methods of eradicating said systems. Today on the Creative Placemaking Podcast, we are delighted to speak to Ms. Liz Obu. Liz is a designer, urbanist, and social innovator who focuses on sustainable design and spatial innovation in challenged urban environments around the world. She's earned degrees in architecture from both Harvard and Wellesley College and has spent several years at the head of the classroom as a teacher at the California College of the Arts, UC Berkeley, Stanford's Design School, and the University of Virginia School of Architecture. Liz has a long history of working on and advocating for issues of spatial and racial justice, and her clients have included the Oakland Museum of California, Piedmont Housing Alliance, and Pacific Gas and Electric, just to name a few. So without further ado, I'm delighted to introduce everyone to Liz Obu. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me here. I'm looking forward to talking. Amen. Awesome. So we're going to jump right into our affirmation freestyle that we mentioned about. So I'm going to start off, then Lynn's going to go, and then you'll end it off for us. All right. All right. (laughs) Okay. So I am feeling great today. I'm excited to go on a jog after work. I am feeling these striped pants that I got last Christmas. I am excited for the holiday season. I am not as nervous as I was about Corona because I am feeling blessed. I am... I'll take it from there. Okay. (laughs) I am just really happy that the weather's been so warm up in New England, even though it's probably global warming, and I'm not happy about that, but um, I've been able to do a lot of yard work, and I'm happy about that, and I am feeling blessed because my daughter is home from Seattle visiting for the holidays, even though she probably shouldn't be, <laughs> and um, uh, Liz, your turn. <laughs> okay, uh, I am feeling happy that the sun is shining brightly outside. I am loving that I can see trees through my window as I talk to you now. Uh, I am feeling very zen from the 12-hour meditation retreat that I did on Saturday. Um, I am feeling still buzzed off of the uh, bourbon apple crisp that I made yesterday for the first time. And uh, I'm excited to be able to talk to you today. I am thrilled because I'm going to go and see my baby niece on Thursday. I am, yeah. That's where I'll stop. No, yeah, that that's good. awesome. You have some awesome stuff going on. <laughs> well, I, I, I also had it with a, a friend turned me on to this like frozen custard delivery. And so I tried it. I finally got in for the first time. It like sells out really quickly. So you have to respond Ooh. to the email. And so I got uh, this Mexican chocolate custard that I had with the crisp. And last oh, night I was like, VIP this custard. is all the product of some very good decisions. Ooh. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Design yes. <laughs> I, design, I designed my life very well this weekend. So yeah, indeed, between the meditation indeed. set and ending on a crisp, it was pretty good. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That's peaceful. Very peaceful. <laughs> All right. So 
I have um doing my research of about your career and everything preparing for this podcast interview. I was really really taken aback with how decorated you are in terms of people celebrating your achievements, your research and your work and everything. But I want to hear from you and there's a lot of there's a lot of autobiographies and biographies about you. So in your own words, who is Liz Ogle? So you're starting off with easy questions, I see. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I, my, my tagline on my bio says that I'm a designer, urbanist, and spatial justice right. activist. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I kind of think those, those three words describe me, or three phrases, describe me quite well. I also would say that, um, you know, when people ask me, as an architect, like what kinds of buildings do you do? And I always find that to be a hard question to answer because for me, like I believe that everybody has a story and everybody should have a space that celebrates their story. And so I see my purpose in life is helping to shape the stories, uh, helping to shape the spaces that enable people to live their best stories. And so I'm invested in my fellow human beings, but particularly those who have been either marginalized or unseen or made invisible by systems of oppression. And I think increasingly liberation is also a phrase that comes to mind when I think of the work that I do, but like, I'm all about, you know, helping myself get free, but also helping everybody else get free. And so to the ability that I can use the skills that I have towards and the privilege that I have towards that end, that's what I'm going to do. That's interesting. Could you speak a little bit more towards your idea of yourself being free? Yeah, so I think it's it really has to do with the acknowledgement that we're all born into system the systems of oppression. I, I was joking with a friend recently that I happened uh, like a couple of weeks ago, I the Matrix was on TV and I had nothing better to do. So I, I rewatched The Matrix, um, which I had to watch actually in grad school. There was some, you know, random theory class that assigned it. But watching it now in the time of the apocalypse, as I describe it, it cuts a little differently. <laughs> uh, and, and so, you know, in some ways, being born into these systems of oppression is a bit like being born into the matrix. It, it, it's like the air that we breathe. It, we don't even question it for and how it seeps into everything that we do. And so if we are going to talk about liberation, the first step has to be looking at ourselves and thinking about what are the ways in which we, you know, unintentionally or intentionally are complicit in the advancement of these systems of oppression and how do we step back from that? So for me, that means that understanding sometimes decisions I might seek to make or ways that I look at a situation might actually be rooted in the systems of white supremacy or racialized capitalism and like they become second nature because I've never been taught to question it. And so that if I take a moment to pause in the decision making or even thinking about how I'm going to use my power and privilege on a project or my response to something, to ask the question, is that actually me just doing what the system has trained me to do? Or is that me actually trying to disrupt the system? So like take a take a typical design project. Uh, 
if you think about the way in which a process is set up for the projects where it's like you have these very conscriptive phases, you have the client being the person who's paying you, you have the communities that are, are you know, impacted by what's created and maybe they get engaged on an engagement, uh, like a, a meeting. Uh, or maybe let's do three meetings so that we can be generous, right? Like all of that is set up for a system about control and allowing the people who have the most power and the privilege to be the ones who set the terms of engagement and set the terms of what's going to be done. To actually question that is to question the very system itself. You know, being that we are conditioned in this system to have to free ourselves and have to resist the way of colonialism in our day-to-day, it makes me think to ask, what is one of the most recent things in your work that you've unlearned to enact more positive change in the uh, uh, spatial justice work? Yeah, that that's doing? a great question. You know, uh, I would guess I would I would point to a project that I've been working on in Charlottesville, which Lynn is familiar with because <laughs> we've been having conversations through another partnership. Um, and so it's it's Friendship Court. It's uh, the redevelopment of 150 mm-hmm. Section 8 property mm-hmm. uh, located just south of downtown um, Charlottesville. So, you know, two blocks away from where Heather Hired was killed in 2017. And uh, I've been working on this project for about five years. And we've tried to take a deeply intensive resident-centered process. So we have an advisory committee that is, um, you know, been with us every step of the way they are effectively co-decision makers and we're at a really interesting point right now where we're towards the end of the planning for phase one it's about to start construction in a month or so and we're starting to talk about phase two and you know in the advisory committee meetings we're having conversations about unit mix and um, strategies of like who's going to engage and how are we financing? And it's, there's so much into this work that goes out of like good intentions. And I think it's really critical to understand that good intentions are not enough, that good intentions can sometimes be bad. And so, yeah. And so what I've really appreciated is that, you know, the team, as much as we can, we've really tried to set things up to not just do good, but do the right way. But sometimes, because even though my skin color is the same as many of the residents who are on our committee, I live, you know, I grew up lower middle class, but now I would guess I could say I'm middle class. Like I own my home. I like get paid to do this thing that I love. I don't worry about putting food on the table or, you know, being the victim of of harm in my home. And so there is a space sometimes where things that residents are saying that they need or that they want are not automatic things that come to my mind because I'm not living their particular life where they're trying to figure out how to make a dollar stretch in ways that like I may have to make the dollar stretch, but not nearly that far. So there were just some decision-making things that we were doing that were coming out of, well, this would be beneficial to the residents and having a moment where the residents were like, but no, that still leaves me trapped in this way, or you're not hearing me enough. It's really about this. And so I think it was, it was 
I have to be mindful to just remember sometimes that like even my assumptions, as much experience as I have in working with communities that have been, um, you know, dealing heavily with the weight of oppression, that that still doesn't mean that I know everything. And it still might mean that there are barriers that come up just because even from say a class level, there are certain things that like I'm not contending with on a day-to-day. -day, so they're not automatic that I think of, but they are for these residents. And so how to open up the space to hear some of those things. Well, I'm gonna jump in just for a second, Jordan, because I have a follow-up question I wanna ask Liz. Um, yeah. In terms of just, could you talk a little bit for the folks that are listening in um, about the resident advisory committee uh, or the advisory committee and how that differs from some of the other kind of planning work that goes on in the world in terms of who's who's on that committee and how that committee's working. Um, sure. Yes. I'm not sure that everybody listening even understands what an advisory committee is. Yeah, sure. So I would say, you know, the traditional design or planning project, what you might do is you engage the community through some community meetings. So maybe you have some regulars that are coming to those meetings, but it's like these very sort of targeted things that often happen early on in the project. And, and maybe you might have some when you're like about to build the thing that you show what has happened, but there are long periods where things go dark and it's more internal to the team and, and paying client work than to the folks who are most impacted by what gets created. But, um, you know, I think this team, and I would say this is a hallmark of my work, really believe that you got to expand the definition of client. So client isn't just who pays us. Clients are also everyone who's impacted by the work that we do. And so in this case, we had to figure out what is the strategy to create a system in which that other client, which is not normally privileged in the development process, actually has a meaty and an appreciable role to influence what happens. So at the very beginning stages of the project, when we were doing the master plan, we created a resident, uh, well, I should say it's a, a community advisory committee that consists of um, half, or now it's more than half members who were elected by other residents at Friendship Court to be the uh, representatives. And then um, a few members of the community that were appointed by uh, PHA, Piedmont Housing Alliance, the owner of the um, Friendship Court to serve on the committee because of particular expertise that they brought in, whether it was planning expertise or health expertise, or we usually almost always have somebody who's a representative from the city, who's a, a city council person. And this committee meets almost monthly, sometimes more than monthly. Lately, uh, we've been meeting once every two to three weeks. And essentially they've been empowered as co-decision makers in the process. So there is not a, this major decision that gets made here that does not come through the resident um, or through the advisory committee. And in particular, what's awesome is that the non-resident members have really, you know, they're in it to support the residents. So they defer to the residents in terms of making major decisions. And what they see their role is, is helping to support whether it's providing additional information. And when we see that there are places where residents need additional information to be able to, or additional skill sets, like things that we may get in our professions and that help us understand the certain decisions that are before us, but that the residents haven't ever received in their life, then we take the time to give them that training. 
And sometimes in this process, we've actually literally slowed down the process because we basically, you know, I have a friend who says, you know, you always need to move at the speed of trust. And so we understand that this is very much about relationship building. And so we need to move at the speed that allows the residents to understand what we're doing and make the most effective decision that they can. And sometimes we think the decisions are going to go different ways and the residents are like, nope, we want this. And so then we're like, all right, even if it's harder, we need to figure out how to make it work that way. Even if it's harder. Okay. That's, that's cool. I feel like, well, I want to know, like what type of, could you, do you have an example of harder going back to the drawing board to do something in response to what the community has said? Okay. We'd rather for it to go a little bit more left than how you all originally planned it to go more right. Yeah, so, you know, one thing that happened very early in the process is there was a master planning um, process. And in some ways, you know, the master plan, the point of it is just to figure out, like, what may be possible. You all, we all know that you're gonna, going to then take it and go into detail as you figure out what to build. And so the master plan that was produced had this idea of maxing the number of units that could be on the site. So it's 150 units, but it's on an 11 acre site. So 150 units to of what? Though? Let's just tell the audience what, of, of what yes. those units are. <laughs> <laughs> 150 Section 8 units. So housing. subsidized housing <laughs> units. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so it's on an 11 acre site. So clearly it could scale up more. And so, and because of the nature of um, funding, federal funding for housing right now, there's no new Section 8. So to a lot of properties that are redeveloping are doing so as mixed income properties, which is both a combination of where the funding's at right now, but also with an idea of moving away from the old way, which often looked at like isolating low-income housing and actually talking about integration, which is a whole other thing that we can discuss. It's, it's, uh, it, it, I think people are interested in integration, whether or not they're designing the things that create integration is a whole other conversation. Um, but here we were looking at maxing, and I don't remember what number we came up with, but it, it, it was you know close to 600 units, if I recall correctly. Uh, and it was to replace, so there was no displacement, so all 150 Section 8 units would be in this new development, and then the rest would be market rate. There was huge blowback from the residents because, you know, they felt that essentially it was a form of gentrification in place, right? Like that you're bringing in all of these likely white middle-class residents, that they were going to be ostracized and isolated on their own property. They would go from being the majority of who was there to now a minority. And there's and, and then there was also a whole lot of energy around um, displacement relating back to uh, urban renewal, which wiped out Vinegar Hill, which was the most vibrant African-American neighborhood. And so everyone started saying, you know, this is going to be Vinegar Hill again. So there was a lot of churn in there. And so we slowed the process down and essentially did a series of charrettes and conversations with the residents on the advisory committee to try and understand, well, what, what would be a place that would make you feel like this was yours? And out of that, 
conversation. Um, we'd actually, uh, one other thing I should say that uh, I was slightly incorrect, the mix of folks who would live in the new redevelopment, actually one thing that did come through the sort of conversations we had with residents during the master planning process was that there was going to be a mix of income. So it wasn't just section eight and market rate. We were actually talking about putting workforce units there, uh, but we didn't really have a sense of the numbers. So one thing that came out of the like slowed down, let's go deep into the weeds conversations and understand what it is that you wanna see here um, if what we what was produced isn't working for you, is that instead of maxing out to like actually do closer to 450 units overall and to do a third, a third, a third. So there's a third section eight, there's a third workforce and there's a third, it's not even market rate, it's like a subsidized market rate. Um, and that like everyone is equal mm -hmm. and so that there is no isolation and to look at the phasing plan which essentially had said you know because we're going to redevelop with folks in place we can only develop little pieces at a time so that we never have to displace anybody off the property okay uh and so originally that was going to take four phases which would have been eight to ten years which is a long time to live on a construction site and so with the residents are like, nope, we want to, we want to get into our place wow. sooner. Yeah. So we looked at how to get everybody rehoused by the end of phase three and to wind up with a fourth parcel that could potentially be a place to do something like home ownership, which was something that residents expressed an interest in. So it, it, you know, the generalities of the development were still somewhat the same, but the, the mix of things that was happening within it. And even eventually the look of the thing was definitely shaped by the residents asking, yeah, we see some major adjustments we want to make in what it has been proposed. When the residents say, okay, yeah, we, we see some major adjustments that need to happen. Do they have the understanding that this is, um, we are victims of spatial anti-blackness and a spatial injustice or are they just using their own language to describe hey this isn't right i would say the latter right and i, I think I, I, but but it's maybe also both and right like this isn't right they know it mm -hmm. isn't right based on what their experiences have been in their lives yeah. right like mm -hmm. you don't we don't need to use the complicated words of spatial anti-blackness for them to well, know you that's know, that's that's what's been happening right that's true that's true um, I also I also um, am thinking like, even with folks not knowing the language and whatnot, sometimes in my, well, I can, in my experience, sometimes things will be happening and I'm not even, and it goes back to the matrix that you're saying that we're conditioned to just accept everything is how they are. So it's an even harder battle to say, okay, wait, this is wrong. And questioning that whole system of how how it was for from the beginning of your life, you know. So it's an interesting it's an interesting uh, point to come to when you realize everything that you had known is an injustice, mm -hmm. or what you had known is an injustice. Mm -hmm. When you are you meeting people that are coming to that space? Are you helping folks to get to that space to understand, you know, 
you're living in a place that is disinvested, disenfranchised. Because I I also think of like in apartment complexes, the kids that grew up in apartment complexes have a lot more fun than kids that grew up in a subdivision because the you you know the social fabric is a lot lot more stronger. So they don't have even though they may not have as much as the people that live in the subdivision, the quality of happiness is just there. So it's kind of like an ignorance is bliss type of complex. So in your work, do you find yourself going to folks living in disinvested neighborhoods trying to get them to see, you know, hey, you should fight for this because this isn't right? Or are you going in and saying, hey, this isn't right? Let me fight for you. Um, I guess it would be closer to latter, but I think, you know, I, I maybe want to kind of question the core assumption at the base of your your question, because I think it's, they're all familiar with it, that the fact that it isn't right, and that they have been pretty much screwed by the system, and that the system continues to exist to screw them, right? Like, that is not a new revelation um, when I'm coming in, or that it has been set up that it's black, brown, and poor people who have been on the short end of the stick continually for generations. I think what I find when I go in is a combination of things. So there's often actually an incredible Mm -hmm. amount of resilience because they have figured out how to survive and where possible thrive in spite of the system, right? And so like for me, that often is a tremendous place to learn. Like, how have you been able to survive and how can we use those assets and lift them up even more? And then I think there's also the condition where there's some folks who just stopped fighting. Like they just got tired of not being listened to. They got tired of being stomped on and they're just doing what they can do to get through a day to day. And so I've seen that condition quite a bit. And then I've also seen the condition where there's, uh, you know, you mentioned kids and yeah, they're incredibly connected, but they're also pretty aware what others think of them. So I remember doing a workshop with Friendship Court kids early on and they're like, we know when we give our address, people automatically think it's the ghetto. My friend, my friends, her mom won't let her come and play here because it has this address, right? So they're, they're, and, and, and if someone is like, say, getting um, Section 8 or some other housing assistance, and they're also getting other things like subsidized daycare, et cetera, they also understand that if they happen to get a job where they can earn a little bit more, their subsidies decrease. And so whatever extra money they thought they could put in their pocket actually really isn't there because all of these other, so it's like, I can't get ahead is the general. And the thing is set up so that I can't ever get ahead. So, and and then just the heaviness of that knowledge, right. I think sits with people. So like all of those conditions Mm -hmm. are things that I find. And so when I come in, my thought is like, all right, I know usually if I'm coming in, it's because somebody is starting to pay attention. And like, how do I leverage that attention to serve these folks 
but like I need them to give me direction of how best to serve them. And I also understand that part of my role is because, <clears throat> excuse me, the savior, quote unquote saviors are like a dime a dozen in some ways, right? Like there have been people riding horses into these communities saying, I'm going to save you. I'm going to give you this. Right. And, and, and then yet here's where we are still in 2020. So <clears throat> for me, part of my work I understand is to come in there and to actually not treat this as a transactional, let me do a bit of good here and create something that can like look good in a fancy magazine or a TED talk, mm -hmm. but rather build a relationship with folks in this community, build the trust with them so that in some ways we become, I become an accomplice to them, meaning, you know, and I want to distinguish between ally and accomplice. And sometimes it's very important to be an ally, but I also feel that sometimes in being an ally is like about recognizing and acknowledging a condition, but not actually risking anything yourself. An accomplice means that you are risking something. You're risking your power and privilege. So I'm risking that I might say something that I know the client that pays might fire my, sorry, I was going to cuss, mm. uh, might fire me. Probably could have used that word. <laughs> 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 my client might, okay, my client might fire my ass for me fighting up for this thing, right? Yeah. But that is an acceptable risk. Or like, and I've been fired before and I've walked off jobs before yeah. because, and unless I'm willing to risk that, then I have no business doing this work with those communities because they're taking risk every day to trust yeah. me with their information, to trust and believe that this time might be different. And so I need to be in the fight as much as they are. Yo, that is real. If you're not ready to leave the walk off, then yeah. wow, that's dedication to a cause like like no other, honestly. But I feel but like it, it's, but liberation is not a spectator sport. No, Liz, yeah, the whole idea of accomplice versus ally is uh, that is just I love that. I love that. It's so good. Um, in terms of that, you know, you've made like a five-year commitment to this project and there's more years ahead of you. That's a long time for a, an architect to commit to pre-planning work. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit and, and what that, you know, I, I think you've already sort of unpacked a lot of it but and why it's necessary, but um, just in terms of process, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny. If you had asked me at the beginning how long I think this thing is going to take, I definitely would not have said five years uh, or longer. But I, I think it makes sense in the in the sense that, you know, the traditional architecture and development process is set up to be highly transactional, right? The, the outcome of success is a building that gets built or a neighborhood that gets planned. But if you're actually setting the outcomes to be more around things like liberation or the ability of a person to have self-determination over their life, like that doesn't fit into the neat phases of architectural development. And it actually requires, in order to understand that, you have to understand a person's story. And in order to even get them to share their story with you, you have to build a relationship. So a lot of the work that I do is about building 
relationships and an understanding that there may be a, some point in the future where I walk away, but I'm in this relationship to the extent that it needs me to be in the relationship, whether it's a year long relationship or a three year long relationship. And that part of my role is also not just to build a relationship with the impacted communities, but also to build a relationship between the two sets of clients, right? So that when I do leave, it's not like there's this hole of like, oh, Liz was holding up that entire system, but it's more like that everyone in that ecosystem is in relationship with one another. I often describe it as like, if you were to meet somebody and you think maybe they might be your friend at some point, like what are the things you would do to actually build that relationship to become a friend? Like what, what would you, what expectations would you have of them? What expectations would you have of yourself? How would you want them to hold you accountable? Because you can't actually have a relationship unless there's some system of accountability. And so for me, the part that like gives me the biggest joy in all my projects is when I understand that I, when I get signs that like the folks on the other side perceive us to be in relationship with one another. Cause then that means that we can do the hard part of the work because to create any of these projects. And I should say that in my work, you know, I'm very lucky that because I've been in the field for so long, uh, I can, I can be choosy about projects. And I, I understand that like that, that gives me a, a wonderful position of privilege where I can take risk and take the projects that no one else can take or very few other people can take because I can hold my clients accountable to risking more, to aspiring to hit bigger levels. And when folks approach me about taking on projects, I'm very clear that they need to understand that that's, that's what's what, that's what we're going to do. And so in, in, in taking that change and pushing for things that haven't been done before, that we do it in a new way that pushes towards some idea of liberation, that is just causing some sort of change and change is inherently triggering. And so if there is not trust, stuff is going to blow up, right? Because the minute it gets to a place where someone is uncomfortable, they're not going to stay in the pocket. They're going to rail against things. And that's when, and so like, for me, the building of the relationship to get to the point where there is trust, where even if, and it's not to say there aren't blowups in my projects, there totally are, but even when there are those blowups, we have a trustful relationship where we're able to like process it. It's like the equivalent of a couple having an argument, right? It, it, it doesn't automatically lead to divorce. You can talk through it and maybe you agree to disagree, but maybe it's just like, you can talk through it and reach through some sort of resolution. And so that that commitment requires time. And I think also, you know, if we take a look at the the generations of pain and trauma and oppression that got us to the point that we are right now, like if you hold it in that light, then maybe the part that seems ridiculous is the idea that you might finish a project in a year or two years and achieve some sort of change, right? If it took generations to cause this, it probably will take a fair amount of time to remedy it. Absolutely. Wow. So, you know, 
you have a lot of projects going on both here in the u.s and abroad and in the first line of your biography in the about section on your site it says from designing shelters for immigrant day laborers in the u.s to a water and health social enterprise for low-income kenyans you have all this stuff going on it made me wonder do you have more of a sense of urgency to address issues closer to <laughs> Africa, the motherland, question. or in the United uh, States? You know, I think, so I, I would also add, I'm first generation, both of my parents were born in Nigeria, so, and I have a tremendous amount of extended family there. So I'm, I'm very connected to issues in Africa uh, and yeah, mm -hmm. could go on on that. But I, I would say that I think oppression is oppression and harm is harm and so regardless of the location of that harm it is mm -hmm. something that is of interest to me because if there's a way that i can be a healer then i look for that that way mm -hmm. uh, so i think i'm drawn to projects equally and in, in all places but i would also add that one of the things that i have found to be a value of having a global practice is and for me to do what I do, it means I have to look at the world without boundaries. I understand that like the systems of oppression have actually often been set up to create as many silos as possible. Because if the pieces aren't talking to one another, you can't figure out how to get together and cause the revolution. So for me, that is both disciplinary, right? Like it's why yeah. I am, if you look at my site, you see projects all over the sun across a range of different subjects. And that's largely because I believe that like, it's not about just solving this in the education space or the housing space, like it's all interrelated. And I treat geography in the same way. Like for me to work in lots of different communities in the US, yeah. which sometimes as diverse as the US is, it's like being in many different countries. Uh, but like similarly to look at the global south, it's this understanding that sometimes seeing the way that something is done somewhere else can actually provide me with the inspiration that helps me go back to another place. And so I am constantly cross fertilizing. And so so some of my like more recent spatial justice stuff in the last two years mm -hmm. was inspired that by work that I've been doing in South Africa for almost two decades now. And in particular, I was there on a, um, a State Department funded thing where I partnered up with a Mandela Washington fellow that I've known for a number of years. And so we we did this whole thing looking at um, spatial injustice within Johannesburg in the post-apartheid realm. And so that like clicked a couple of things. I was like, oh, that's interesting. All right, let me come and take that to some of the spatial justice stuff that I'm looking at here in the US. So it's, I, I go to another place in order to find the answers, or I wouldn't say answers, to say the next point in the journey that I can bring back to here and vice versa, right? Some of the stuff that I can think about within Sub-Saharan Africa or Bangladesh come out of things that I may be looking at here, or even from like, you know, I had one project a number of years ago where I was doing a project in Bangladesh a couple months after I'd finished a project in Kenya. And I got a total inspiration of how to look at this thing around um, mm -hmm. poor mothers and nutrition based on something that I had seen in the um, clinics 
that I had been working with in Kenya. So that cross-pollination just kind of goes around the entire ecosystem. Okay. That's an interesting, that's an interesting take. So with all of the global things that you have going on, you mentioned something that really, really struck me in your, in your TED talk, the the, uh, most recent one. And you mentioned uh, something about deteriorating industrial cities such as Lorraine, Ohio and Bolton, England. That is um, that folks often rush to remake, thinking they can ease the pain and get past all that mistakes and whatnot. Could you speak to um, what you feel the motivation is to quickly remake those places so fast? Yeah, I uh, I wrote a piece that should be coming out pretty soon um, that was talking about uh, how we seem caught in the loop of urgency and complacency. So mm-hmm. I think the rush to remake often is when we feel the pull of urgency. And I want to sort of distinguish there are two types of urgency. Like you often hear people say that the fierce urgency of now when dealing with some of the the issues like anti-blackness, et cetera. And I want to say completely in support of that urgency. Um, That urgency is about repairing, but there's another form of urgency that is actually about the urgency to forget the urgency to Mm. move from the place of discomfort at the place of where you've seen that thing and you're like, oh shit, that's bad. Let us fix this quickly so that we don't have to be uncomfortable anymore. And it's kind of the urgency that comes with the systems of oppression that's about like, how can we get back to a place of white comfort and normalized power? And then when you feel like you've done enough to shift out of that discomfort, then you go into complacency, which is all about like business as usual, but maybe we tweaked it so it's a little bit better than it was before. And so when the rush to remake is really about that like urgency of forgetting and getting back to a state where things are okay. And in order to like forget, you can't, you can't just what a, you know, when Lynn asked me that question about things taking years, that means like the the conversation is open for years. That means you're holding the discomfort of the generations mm-hmm. for years. Mm-hmm. Most people don't want to do that. So you want to say we're going to wipe the click slate clean, like all of that stuff. Yeah, it happened, but we're we're past that now. We're better. We're going to build this new thing, and everybody's going to be okay. But there's no way you could ever do that, given the extent of harm that has been caused and given that such a short time does not give you the amount of time that is necessary to sit with what we and our systems have wrought. Yeah, Liz, you know, I was also just thinking as you're talking and as I'm listening, you know, I, there, there are words that you're using that you don't, you don't get trained to do in design school, things, actions that you, that, you know, actions you've taken in your work with community um, you know, things like trust, like how do you teach trust? How do you teach people how to build trust? How do you teach young designers how to heal? How do you like heal themselves, but then also do that healing work that you're yeah. referencing in community? How do you, how do you, um, build em- empathy into design 
you know, education. Like how, how do we teach the next generation of designers to work the way that you're working? Because um, those aren't the tenets of design school for the most part. Yeah, no, dead on. I definitely did not learn this stuff in school. Uh, so, you know, one very practical thing I would say is I'm part of this group called um, the Design Futures Student Leadership Forum. We're probably in our ninth year now, and it was formed by, I'm happily not alone in, in being a practitioner like this. And so it was formed by a group of us who were very concerned that some of the things that we recognize are necessary to be able to do this work well were not being taught. Uh, in most schools. And so we created a university consortium system and we have two programs, a, a week-long summer masterclass, a series of masterclasses where we teach skills uh, like, uh, you know, our core consists of oppression 101, uh, uh, power, privilege, and positionality, which is the workshop I co-teach with Christine Gaspar, who's the executive director of CUP, and also um, other staff members at CUP. And then History of the Built Environment, where we focus on the things you don't learn in your architectural history course, like blockbusting, redlining, et cetera. Uh, and then we have you know, experts from around the country who come and teach master classes on some other things related to how do you understand how the built environment has been complicit and what are the skills you need to break that complicity. So that's a very, and then we do a faculty thing in January where we work with faculty to like sort of talk through these issues. So that's a very real and practical thing. I think where schools need to move to, and, and I'm also on the advisory board for a couple of schools right now and everybody's wrestling with this. They're trying to figure out like, how do we rework these systems? And particularly with things like architecture and some of the other design disciplines that have some state of licensure, it's really problematic because the licensing bodies are like way, 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 way out to lunch. Like they're not even on the same planet we're in right now about learning through these things. And so in many ways we're looking at how do we like hijack or disrupt the system. And so I think there's one thing that's about how do we train faculty? Because in my experience, some of the challenges because faculty didn't learn this, they and students are demanding it, but because faculty didn't learn this, while they are interested, they feel kind of stymied and sometimes even deer in headlights about teaching it. So how are we training faculty to get this experience? And then the other thing is like, I'm still learning. Like a lot of the things that I've been talking about over the course of this call, having not learned it in school, it's been over the last 20 years of, or sorry, I'm almost making myself older than I actually am. In the last 15 years, <laughs> it's really about seeking other forms of knowledge, like understanding that it, no, it wasn't being offered in my school. So I had to go and find places where I could go and get it. And so constantly taking trainings to, to teach myself, you know, I, I, I joked in the beginning about sitting at this 12 hour meditation sit on Saturday and part of uh, it was with Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams and what I love about her as a teacher is that she weaves together race and the Dharma and this moment and the Dharma and so sitting and getting her Dharma talks was like giving me inspiration for things of like oh this is really interesting in my own work of thinking how am I holding the discomfort of sitting in the now and processing it and understanding how you move with the flow of things. I took a trauma healing course a year or two ago that was 
hugely helpful to understand this idea of emotional first aid and how might I start to think about weaving that into my to my work. And so I'm constantly looking for different ways to learn and understanding that, you know, for right now, it's not actually for the most part coming from the design disciplines, but that there are other disciplines who are interested in this work. So how do I form alliances? How do I go to their conferences? How do I just sit and be a learner? And so I think that, you know, we're definitely, it's going to be incumbent on the next generations coming after us. And the good news is like, they know this and they are demanding it and they're looking for ways to seek it out themselves. And I just want to sort of encourage to continue to look outside of our discipline for the wisdom, but then commit to bringing it back into our discipline. Because I think the only way that it is going to change is if we all continue to demand this and hold those who haven't come to the party yet that, or I should say more, haven't woken up yet that like, we're leaving you behind. Like we're going to change it ourselves and we're going to create it that either you basically drop out in obsolescence or you get to the point where you're ready to wake up. And when you're ready to wake up, we'll embrace you and bring you along. That's, you know, I, um, Oh, what did you say? No, I was just saying that was like a great place to almost wrap up our conversation. I think it was like an excellent ending. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so I um, I would like to get to the next segment of our podcast, which is the lyrics for life section. And it doesn't have to be a whole stanza of a song and it can be um, a line of poetry. Feel free. I can start off if if need be or you can go. It doesn't matter. I can go. So I um my favorite my favorite artist right now well for a few years has been two chains he's from atlanta so we I, and i just love all his stuff he dropped a new he dropped a new album uh on friday mm. and <laughs> it's a very witty line he said all the things that i have done i cannot believe in karma and i thought that was so funny <laughs> so that really that isn't necessarily usually i have a very loving happy-go-lucky optimistic lyrics for life section but i just thought that was so funny and i have been <laughs> playing that line over and over in my head lynn do you have one you're I, gonna do or should i uh... i i usually skip this section but i'm trying to find something so why don't you go and then i'll i'll see if i can do it <laughs> I'm, I'm glad we're getting Lynn on board with this one. Um, so I, I have I have two things. Uh, when you had said song, I was like, uh, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of songs I have on repeat, but the the lyrics don't stay in my head outside of listening to the songs. I just know I crave them. But uh, poetry has been really helpful for me in this time. And um, there are two that came to mind when. Uh, you gave the prompts. The The first one is um, by Rumi, which just says that the wound is where the light enters. And that has been a very profound one for me as I think about like, how do we talk about healing and wrestling with the pain? Is that like actually that very place where you hurt is where we will find the light and where we will find the wisdom to heal. So for me, that's very powerful. And then uh, one of my favorite poets is Nayara Wahid. 
and she has this poem called therapy and it starts off by saying that the hard season will split you through do not worry you will bleed water do not worry this is grief and then it ends with keep speaking the years from their hiding places keep coughing up smoke from all deaths all the deaths you have died keep the rage tender because the soft season will come and so i think for me it's very much this idea of you know we are we are in some times that are dark and maybe a little bit hard uh, well no i should say a lot hard the apocalypse is definitely no joke uh but that you know uh there's hope because actually there is something better that is on the other side of this and that we we need to do the hard work of enduring and making our way through this in order to get to that better yes mm. yeah and you know i don't think i'm gonna go that that was just too beautiful and perfect so i'm gonna just say thank you liz for joining us today it's been really a privilege. You use that word numerous times um, when you're talking about working with community. That's a privilege, but it's really a privilege to have you with us today. Thank you. Thank you, so much. Thank you guys. This podcast was produced by Local Initiative Support Corporation, LISC, a national community development organization working in rural and urban areas across the country. For more information on LISC, please visit our website at LISC.org. The podcast was also produced with support from the National Endowment for the Arts, an independent federal agency that funds, promotes, and strengthens creative capacities of our communities, providing all Americans with diverse opportunities for arts participation and additional support from the Kresge Foundation. Thanks again for joining us and have an excellent day.